Uh, If you would, if you haven't gotten there yet, turn to Genesis chapter 15. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg. And so now, consequently, every October 31st, we celebrate... Halloween, right, Halloween, right, we could celebrate, probably should, Reformation Day, right, that moment when he nailed those 95 theses to the door was one of the events that sparked the Protestant Reformation, really transformed the church, and and what really began to stir it up in Luther's heart and mind was his study of the book of Romans, he was a professor of theology at the time, professor of New Testament, and he was studying for himself, but also to teach the book of Romans, and he got stuck in chapter 1. Where Paul said, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. That, that phrase just laid hold of him and wouldn't let him go. And it kept running around in his mind and in his heart. The just shall live by faith. What does that mean? And finally, it dawned upon him. He realized that means that my works do not give me merit before God. I'm accepted into a relationship with God simply based upon faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I am justified or declared righteous and put into right relationship with God simply by faith. Faith alone, sola fide. Faith is at the very heart of Christianity. You can't talk about Christianity without talking about faith. You can't omit it and you can't add to it. That's what Luther realized. But unfortunately, there really are so many people who've been exposed to Christianity, maybe they've been in church their entire lives, but they really don't understand, what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to believe? Simply to believe and add nothing to faith. This morning we're going to talk about what is the foundational passage for understanding the theology of faith in the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 15. I want you to read with me, beginning Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Genesis 15 opens with the phrase, After these things, which points us backwards. We have to say, What happened? Before these things, what's the setting? Recall that in Genesis chapter 12, God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He said, Abram, I want you to follow me. I'm going to take you to a land. I'm not going to tell you where that land is, but I'm going to take you there. And that land will become your land. And I will give you descendants and I will bless you. I will make your name great. I'll cause you to be a blessing to all the nations. So leave your home, leave your culture, leave your family. And follow me. And Abram packed up. He did take Lot with him and he took his father with him. He got as far as Haran and then he, he stalled out for several years. Apparently God stirred him up again and he left his father behind, took Lot with him and went down into Canaan, into the promised land. After he'd been there for a few years, a famine struck the land of Canaan, which was not unusual. And so Abram decided, I must feed my family. I must go down to Egypt. There's always food in Egypt. And so he, like many others, made the trip down to Egypt. And once he got there, he realized, you know, there may be a flaw in my plan. This wife of mine is so beautiful, the Egyptians may just take her from me. And so Sarah, here's the plan. Just say you're my sister. The plan didn't work well. 
Pharaoh heard about Sarah's beauty, took her into his own harem, and gave Abram all kinds of wealth for having taken his sister wife. And so God intervened, and God struck Pharaoh's house, revealed to Pharaoh that this woman was actually married. And so Pharaoh said, Abram, what have you done to us? You have become a curse to us. Get out. He gave more wealth and said, go, leave, and do not ever come back. So Abram went back into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. And by this point in time, he's a wealthy man. Not just from what Pharaoh has given him, but his own business dealings. And Lot has become very wealthy. And the land is just too small. There's not enough grazing land. There's not enough water. And so Abram says, let's solve this. You pick a direction and I'll go the other. And so Lot chose to go down into the valley near the, what is now the Dead Sea. It's a very fertile land at the time. It's not a good decision for him. And he moved his tents closer and closer and closer to Sodom. And further and further away from the agent of blessing Abram. In fact, calamity falls on Lot. There's a group of kings that come in, led by uh, the king of Persia at that time, and they come in, they sweep through that area, they take uh, people captive, they take all of their property, and they march off back toward their homelands, and Abram hears about this. So he gathers together, there are just 318 men who are living in his household, and he gets together with a couple of his allies, and they chase down these kings, and they have an incredible victory against a much larger foe. They conquer them and they take back all of the plunder. On their way back, they meet a really unusual character, Melchizedek. He's the king of Jerusalem. He's king of peace, king of righteousness. And Abram worships the Lord. In fact, there's a cycle of returning to worship in Abram's life. He begins to put God first and foremost in his life. And then Genesis 15 opens with these words from God, Abram, don't be afraid. He's just had an incredible experience of worship and an incredible victory over these kings. Why would Abram be afraid? There are a few possibilities. It may be that uh, Abram is afraid of retaliation from the people that he has conquered. It may be that Abram is afraid that time is running out and God can't fulfill his promises. Abram's probably about 85 years old now. It could be that Abram's afraid of God. You know, if you see these uh, theophanies, these, these moments in time where people have a, a visual representation of God before them and they see the glory of God and hear a word from God, every time the first thing God says to them is, don't be afraid. Because it's, it's an extremely frightening thing as they see the, the perfection of the glory of God in visual form in his absolute holiness and their own unholiness is revealed, they fear that they will die. And so God says to Abram, as he says to others, don't be afraid. Abram, I'm a a shield to you. I'm here to protect you, not to destroy you. I'm your guardian and I am the one who will greatly reward you. And Abram says, if I may paraphrase, God, respectfully, so what? (laughs) So what if you guard my life? And extend my life. When I die, there is no one to carry on after me. You've given me no heir. There is one born in my house, according to tradition. This slave will receive all that I have. God, respectfully, so what? If you reward me greatly, I have no one to pass it on to. How can I know that you will fulfill your promises to me? And so God speaks. Verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man, he will not be your heir. 
But one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said to them, said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. First characteristic of biblical faith is that it's based upon divine revelation. In other words, biblical faith does not occur in a vacuum. There is substance to our faith. God reveals himself to Abram, just as he reveals himself to every man and woman. And there are three ways that God reveals himself. The first is through creation. Read with me again, chapter 15, verse 5. It says, the Lord took Abram outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you were able to count them. And he said, so shall your descendants be. Remember, Abram didn't have a Bible. God had spoken to him a few times, and he probably memorized what God had spoken. Probably didn't write it down, but memorized it in culture of his day. But he he didn't have any written form of communication from God. But he did have creation. And God said, I want to make my point to you. Come outside. And can you imagine what the sky looked like in Abram's day? There's no pollution in the air. There's There's no cities with lights. Where Abram is, he probably couldn't see a fire burning outside. There's there's no one around. He goes out and he looks up and it's like if you've ever been to Colorado on top of a mountain camping, not down in a city, but you look up and you're you're way out away from anyone. You can't see fires anywhere. You look up in the sky and I've I've been there at times when I can see the Milky Way. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of stars. God says, Abram, look at that. So shall your descendants be. And as you look at that, that's an unwritten textbook of who I am. It is my intention to reveal myself in creation. When you look at creation, you see these stars. You see greatness. No one else could have done this. You see power. You see strength. You see goodness and justice and truth. Abram, you see me. Keep your place here in Genesis 15 and turn with me to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19 and verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no actual speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, and yet their sound has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. It isn't verbal proclamation, but it is God's intention that we look at creation, we observe what God has made, and we... Think back to the one who has created it. We see the effect and we think about the cause. Great and awesome and powerful is God. And so God says, Abram, let me reassure you of my promise to you by reminding you of what I've done in creation. God reveals himself in creation. God reveals himself through propositions, through his word. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God says, I have not just revealed myself in creation, but also through propositions, through my word. It's now the fourth time that God has revealed himself to Abram. And each time God reveals more about himself and more about his plan. 
So God has revealed himself in creation. He's revealed himself in the word. He's also revealed himself in history. When he intervenes, when he breaks into history. And as Abraham thinks back about his walk with God over the past 10 years, he can see the hand of God. He can see God guarding and protecting him. God says to him, Abram, I'm the God of your past. I'm the God of your present. I'm the God of your future. I'm the God, same one, who called you out of Ur the Chaldeans. I'm the one who protected you as you traveled through a dangerous land. I'm the God of your present. I'm a shield about you. I gave you victory over stronger kings. I'm the God of your future. I'm the one who will be your great rewarder. Abram, I am all around you in and through your life. Now, we don't each have the same history that Abram had. We don't have the same history as one another. But in wisdom, as we look back and we, we, we survey our lives, we can see that God has moved. I, I think of my own life. And even when I, I stepped out of the will of God, I made decisions that were contrary to God. I can see God guarding and protecting and even using my poor decisions to move me closer toward him. I can see the hand of God. God reveals himself in creation through his spoken word in our own personal histories. And all of this is about God revealing himself to us. Who is God? And God is saying to Abram, Abram, your faith has substance. I am a promise-giving and a promise-keeping God. Faith does not occur in a vacuum. Faith has substance. And we're told, Abram believed. And what does it mean, then, to believe? A simple definition would be this. The essence of faith is reasoned trust. What does it mean to believe? It is reasoned trust. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says simply, Abram believed God. Hebrew word for believed It's the word aman. It refers to something that is true or steadfast or reliable or trustworthy. It was used literally of the pillars in the temple. They are strong. They are reliable. God is faithful. And so when Abram believed, he considered that God was reliable. He considered that God was trustworthy. Now, probably a better translation here would be Abram had believed God. In other words, this is not the first time that Abram believed. According to Hebrews 11 verse 8, Abram believed when God first appeared to him back in Ur of the Chaldeans. This is more like a parenthetical statement. God is saying, Abram had believed. Abram was a believer. Abram responded again in faith because he was Abram the believer. Abram believed God. Now, again, what does it mean? I want to get more specific. And and how I want to describe or define faith is by laying out, in a sense, what faith is not. And I'm going to lay it out in a sense uh, in extremes. You'll see the tension between these, these concepts. Okay, four things that faith is not. First, faith is not a blind leap. Okay, for those who are, are not uh, Christians, they often think of faith or describe faith as the opposite of reason. Right, Christians are the people who, who, who stop thinking or who, who think about all the evidence and then reject it And then make a blind leap contrary to all evidence. I would argue that faith is reasoned trust. Faith is consistent with the evidence that God has given us. If it were not, I suspect that none of us here would be believers, right? We say contrary to all evidence, I choose to believe. 
I don't think so. It's reasoned trust. Let me give you an illustration. Um, I love to fly. Uh, you know, I mean, when I see a plane going overhead, I think, gosh, I wonder where that plane is going. Wouldn't it be fun to be going somewhere right now? I just, I, I, I love flying. It's exciting. It's exhilarating to me. Um, it's a change. It's also, in a sense, really relaxing because I can get somewhere really fast and I don't have to drive, right? Somebody else is going to do all the work and, and I can get a long way away and experience something very different, but I don't have to do the work. I really enjoy it. It's exciting, but it's also really relaxing for me in, in that sense. So I show up at the airport, get on the plane, I buckle in and you know, the, the engines start to hum and they're vibrating and, and I, I fall asleep. I mean, just, I get on the plane and I'm out. My, my wife really hates that, but I'm just, I'm out. I usually wake up, we're up in the air, I go, oh, did we already take off? You know, I'm just so relaxed flying. I love it. Some of you probably don't feel that way about flying. How is it that I can be so relaxed? Well, it's because I have evidence. I know that a tremendous amount of engineering goes into the construction of these airplanes. I know that there are safety regulations, so they have to be maintained consistently. I know that the pilots have a tremendous amount of training. Many of them have flown for the military. I know that there is air traffic control that's managing what happens in the sky. I know the history of airplane flight, and I know that statistically it's safer for me to fly someplace than to drive in my own car. Those are facts. That's evidence. And so I get on a plane, and I relax. I fall asleep. It is reasoned trust. Reasoned trust. I've also known folks who... um, don't agree with me, and they actually refuse to fly. I, when I was in seminary, I had a roommate. His name was Neil Lines, and Neil was from New Jersey. So when we graduated, Neil's mom got in an airplane, and she flew down to Dallas for graduation. Neil's father got on a train from New Jersey, and he spent a week. I'm not exaggerating. He was on the train a week. By the time we picked him up, at the train station, he was beat up. I mean, he was just, I mean, he was so incredibly exhausted. And he sat down at our kitchen table and I said, Mr. Lyons, why didn't you just fly? He said, it's not safe. And I said, yes, it is. And he said, no, it's not. I said, well, let me prove it to you, right? Let me try to prove it to you. I'm going to give you evidence. And I talked to him about safety procedures and the engineering and the history and so forth. And he said, I don't believe you. Because you can't prove to me that my plane won't crash. That's the other extreme. Faith is not a blind leap contrary to reason, nor on the other hand is faith proof. He was correct. I could not prove to him, in a sense, that his plane would not crash. Faith is not proof. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction or confidence of things not seen. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. The writer of the Hebrews says we have to take creation by faith. Why do we have to take creation by faith? Because we didn't see it. I wasn't there and you weren't there. Faith is not sight. We can't prove that God created. 
Do we have evidence? Yeah, I would argue, as we did when we studied Genesis chapter 1, that the most reasonable explanation for what we see in all of creation is God. And I would argue it's the God of the Bible. It's most, the most consistent, most reasonable explanation. Can we prove it? No, we were not there. I didn't see God create. I've not seen God himself. I've not heard a voice audibly from God. I would love to, but I haven't. I've not been to heaven and returned, and so I can't prove to you God exists, that he created. I can't prove those things. I can validate them, but I can't prove them. See the distinction? Now, why is this important? On a very practical level, I think it's important because a lot of times we feel like mature believers never doubt. And then we begin struggling with, with doubts, anxieties, fear, and we say, perhaps I'm not mature. Or worse, perhaps I'm not a Christian at all because mature Christians don't doubt or real Christians don't doubt, and so I don't fit in that category. I'm really wrestling right now. Guess what? In Genesis chapter 15, Abram, the believer, is doubting. He's doubting whether God is true and reliable and trustworthy. Is he going to fulfill his promises? He doubts. And so the principle for us to remember is the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disbelief. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is disbelief. Genuine believers sometimes wrestle with doubt. Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, is wrestling with doubt. However, he does not disbelieve. Romans chapter 4, verse 20. Now regarding the promise of God, Abram did not waver so as to disbelieve or waver in disbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Abram chose not to disbelieve. Did he wrestle? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now let me illustrate again. Some of you do not agree with me. You hate to fly. But you still fly. Because you want to get to where you want to be and you don't want to take the train or a greyhound or walk or ride your bike. Say, I need to get there and I need to get there quickly and so I'm going to fly. And you may be incredibly nervous. You may arrive at the airport and sit in the waiting room and you you begin to sweat right then. And they, they call out, your seating row, your section, and you say, well, let, 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 let's just wait till, we'll wait till everybody else gets bored because that's the Christian thing to do. Let's let the others get on first. And so everybody else boards the plane and you finally get on and you put on your seatbelt. You yank it extra tight and you pull out the, the safety manual and you read it, right, from top to bottom and where are the exits? And can, do you think that person can actually open the exit? I don't know, you know, okay, where's the flotation device? Can, can I pull it out now and just test it? Okay, you know, and then the pilot gets on and he takes off and you're, here you go and oh man, you're just gripping the whole time, you're gripping. Your spouse is asleep next to you and they're going to pay dearly for that. <laughs> Finally, it's time for descent and your stomach is rising and it feels terrible and the wheels hit, screech, and your shirt's you're going to crash, but you don't. You land safely. Unbuckle and push through everybody, right? You get out, fall on the ground, kiss the ground. Oh, it's wonderful. You know, we safely landed. A lot of fear, a lot of misgiving, but you got on the plane. You entrusted yourself to pilot and plane to get you where you needed to go. That's faith. 
Is it, is it perfect faith? No, but it's faith. Let me give you another illustration. My wife actually hates this illustration. Um, so again, once again, I'll, you know, probably pay for it later. Uh, but she hates it because it's very, it's very unromantic. I'm going to give you a very unromantic illustration of faith. Through the years, I've had a lot of college guys come to my office and they want to get married. And they tell me, you know, I know God wants me to marry Jill, right? Whatever. I know God wants me to marry Jill. You're, really, how do you know? God told me to marry Jill. <laughs> you shouldn't have said that. God told you, really, God told you. And you know. Can you prove it? Can you prove can you prove that you should marry this woman? And they say, oh, absolutely. And what they do then, the conversation goes this direction. They, they begin to line up a lot of data, a lot of evidence, so to speak. Go, well, you know, we're really attracted to one another. I go, great, that's a good place to start. That's very helpful in marriage. I'm glad you're attracted to one another. Well, and we like being with one another. We have a similar sense of humor. We have the same direction in life. We, we love Jesus in a similar way. We want the same things for our lives. Our friends see us together and they say, you know, that's a really great fit. Have you thought about it? And I say, yes, I have. You know, and my parents like her and her parents like me. I mean, all of these things line up and I say, that's great. And I think I'm, I'm pretty well convinced, but you haven't proven it to me. You may have validated to me that this is a good decision. And this is where my wife doesn't like it. She likes, likes to be able to say, I knew. Right. And so, you know, we're talking about it. I go, sure, I knew too. Right, because it's where well, I, I recognize this is a romantic conversation, it's not philosophical, and so I knew too, you know, right? But the philosopher theologian in me says, No, I didn't know, but I was convinced. Uh, you know, that, that's not good over dinner. But that's what happens. And I tell these young guys, I say, You know what? It sounds like you are really convinced that you have a really high level of certainty. But, you know, I, I am guessing that on the day of your wedding, you're going to be nervous. And, well, you should be. Because you're taking a huge step of faith. Now, you don't know what life's going to hold for you or for her. For the two of you together, you don't know how you may suffer your health or her health, loss of job, infertility, struggles with family members, outside pressures. You, you don't know these things. And how will you respond? You think you know how you'll respond, but who will you be in the future? And who will she be in the future? And maybe you've seen this wonderful track record. You know, this woman ha- has suffered before and she has walked faithfully through that suffering. And so that's another piece of evidence that convinces you we will make it even when it's hard. And so what you do on your wedding day is you don't know, but you take an enormous step of faith. And you entrust yourself to this woman. This woman entrusts herself to you. That is faith. Is it proof? No. But it's, it's conviction and it's confidence based upon the evidence. Okay? That is faith. Third, faith is not simply knowledge of facts. Faith is not knowing the data, the history, the ideas of the gospel and theology and giving mental assent to these things. Faith is beyond that. I've run into so many people who have, some have spent a lifetime in church and they've heard the gospel over and over and over again. They know all the stories of the Bible. 
But it's never come to the point where they said, you know, Christ didn't just die for the sins of the world. Christ died for me, and I believe. I appropriate what he did for me. Just yesterday, I was talking to a, a guy, and he said, you know, I grew up in the church. We went to church every day. I heard the story of the gospel over and over and over again, but I never really understood that it applied to me and that I needed to make a decision to trust in Christ. So I've used the word trust as a synonym for faith or belief because there's an, an active element in that. There's an active connotation to the word trust. I need to choose to trust. I become convinced by history, by my thinking, by the Spirit of God, And then I make a decision to trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It's not simply giving mental assent. I I actually got a a letter from some missionary friends uh, just last week, and they said there was a, they were asking prayer for a girl who has been in their ministry for three years. Every member of their team, they have spent time with her, they have shared the gospel with her over and over and over again. And in the letter, he said, This young woman could tell you the gospel, probably clearer than many people in your church, but she has not believed. And there may be some of you who are sitting here this morning, and you've been around the gospel, you've been in church, you've been exposed, you know the idea, you know the story. But have you ever said, God, I acknowledge that I'm one of those sinners for whom Christ died. Thank you for having Christ die for me. I believe that that death was for me. It's easy for us to, to diminish or minimize what faith is. But it's not just knowing the story. It's appropriating the story for yourself. It's also very easy for us to add things to faith, to embed extraneous ideas into faith. Many, many, many churches add ideas into faith that are not a part of faith. So, on the other extreme, faith is not commitment, surrender, or turning from sin. Now I want to be super clear here because I feel like I'm often misunderstood or misrepresented. I am not saying that commitment, surrender, turning from sin are bad things. I'm not saying that. In fact, we should all continuously be recommitting our life to following the will of God. We should continuously be surrendering all that we are to the will of God. We should continuously be turning away from sin. All of these are good things that we should always be doing, but they're not inherent in the idea of faith. Faith is receiving. Faith is about what God has done for us, not about what we do for God. You see, Abraham could have made all kinds of wonderful promises to God, and he probably would have broken all of them. He, He did, actually, right? Leave your family behind. Well, he brings part of his family. That, that is partial obedience, which we sometimes label as disobedience, right? I mean, he, he obeyed, sort of. And then he stopped. He didn't continue to the land that God was to show him. And then he got fearful and he gave away his wife. Then he had a great victory and he had this wonderful mountaintop experience, literally, with God. And he sees God and he hears the voice of God directly. And then just a very short time later, he struggles with that again, and he gives his wife away again, right? He, 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 he gives her away to Abimelech, and he's frustrated and impatient with God's will happening when he wants it to happen, and so he takes Hagar as a wife. 
In other words, we can make all kinds of wonderful promises. The fact is we often break those. God is not waiting for us to make promises of of commitment or surrender or give up all our sins or maybe part of our sins before we receive a free gift. To receive a free gift is to receive a free gift. And there's nothing that we can do that pleases God until we first receive what Christ has done for us. Right? In other words, as I'm receiving a genuinely free gift, I'm not giving something back to God at the same time. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm coming to God with both hands empty and saying, God, there is nothing that I can bring to you. I'd love to make some promises, but they're not worth anything. Instead, I come with absolutely empty hands and I say, yes, thank you for what you have done for me. I accept. And now I long to surrender my life to you because of what you've done for me. But there's nothing we give back to God until we first receive what he has done for us. That is simple faith. John 1.12 illustrates this. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John's saying to receive is to believe, and to believe is to receive. And when we receive, we come with absolutely empty hands and we just take what Christ has done for us. Faith is reasoned trust. Or if I can put it in a different way, consistent with the evidence, but beyond what I can prove, I become convinced that God is true. And so I choose to trust in him. I'm convinced. And when I believe... The result is relationship with God and reward. A relationship with God and reward. Read with me again Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. It says, And Abram believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. This is the doctrine, the foundation of the doctrine of justification. Paul builds his argument in Romans chapter 4. On Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abram believed, and God said, I count that as righteousness. So rather than looking at your sin, your failures, rather than looking at your inadequate good works, instead I'm going to look at your trust in my promises, and I'm going to credit that to your account in place of your sin. In place of your inadequate works, you get my faithfulness, my righteousness, I credit that to your account. Now, this is not moral character in terms of righteousness. This is status. Abram enters into a right relationship with God the moment he first believes. When did that occur? Well, as we said, probably back in Genesis 12. The moment that he passed from death into life, outside the family of God to be a, being adopted as a son of God. Some of you can remember that moment of time. Some of you can't remember that moment of time. But there was a moment when you you crossed from death into life, when you first believed God declared you to be in right relationship with him. And the moment that that happened, God brought you into his family. You became a son or a daughter. And since God is always faithful, you will always belong to God. You can never lose that relationship. Not because you are faithful, but because God is faithful. That is the moment of faith. When I'm sharing the gospel, one of my favorite verses to use is Romans chapter 4, verse 5, because it is so clear, it is so direct. Paul wrote, But to the one who does not work, 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. I love the clarity of that verse. Does faith include works? Absolutely not. To the one who does not work, but instead believes. Here's works, here's faith. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who declares righteous, the ungodly, knowing all of the promises Abraham might make and all of the failures that he would commit, God said, I declare you righteous simply on the basis of faith. I credit righteousness to your account. Now, once that is done and we move into a right relationship with God, God takes that faith and he begins to grow it. And we need to realize that it is not faith that saved us, but God saved us through faith. So it's not an issue of the quantity of faith we have or the quality of faith we have, but God who always keeps his word. God is faithful. So God saves us through faith. And then he takes that faith and he stretches it and he grows it. And it's a lifelong process. Abram in Genesis chapter 15 is struggling. He's wrestling with doubt. How how can I know that I will have a seed? He said, look up at the stars of the heaven. Let me give you my word, my assurance, my promise. And then God says, you're also going to get a land. Do you remember that? He says, well, how can I know that I'll get the land? And God does as Abram stretches his faith. And Abram's faith grows. His confidence grows as Abraham receives reward. The reward is assurance. Growing assurance, growing confidence, growing conviction in the God in whom he has believed. Read with me in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7. The Lord said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now, who was this passage first written for? Remember? Who's the original audience? Right, certainly, Abraham is the one who experienced this, right? But who was it written for? It's written for the Exodus generation, right? It's written for the Exodus generation, the generation who's just come out of Egypt, and they're about to go into the promised land, the land promised to whom? To Abram, Right? And so Moses is retelling this story and he's reminding them, remember God told Abram all this that has transpired, right? He told Abram that our people, his descendants, would go down into a land and be oppressed and be slaves for 400 years. It happened, didn't it? It happened. And then God said, Abram, I'm going to rescue your people out of that land. And when you come out, you will plunder those people. That just happened, didn't it? Just as God had said. 
And that this land that was promised to Abraham, is, is, it's our inheritance now. Since God's word has always been faithful, he's always been true, we can trust him and we can go in and take our promised inheritance. We can trust God. It's written for that extra generation so that they would be reassured that God is faithful and true. So that they could follow God as they entered into these battles. It's written for us as we review this history, history and we're reminded God has always kept his word. What God says will come true has come true. We can trust in him. If you have forgiveness of sins, you will have eternal life. You will be with God forever. Trust him. And God is doing is he's bringing assurance and confidence through his word. And now God says, Abram, let me give you even greater confidence. What was previously a promise that I made to you, now I'm going to solidify with a covenant, a binding agreement between you and me that I will accomplish my word to you. Chapter 15 and verse 17. It came about when the sun had set. And remember Abram's unconscious off to the side, seeing what's transpiring, but in a sense, through a vision. So the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite, and it is sealed with a covenant. There's a lot of discussion about the meaning of uh, this, this vision that Abraham experienced. Some say this is a vision of the future. And the smoking oven is God and the flaming torch is Abram or Abram's descendants. The animals that are split in two, these are the ten nations that will be dispossessed. And God goes through in a fire and he's judging those nations. And he's using Israel to bring judgment on those nations through, ultimately, Joshua. It's a visionary picture of the future, some people think. Others say, no, what it is, is this is the ratification of the covenant. And when a covenant was really serious, it's ratified with blood. And what the parties would do is that they would take the animals and they would split them in half. The birds, they would tear off their heads and put one part on one side, one part on the other. And then the parties of the covenant would join hands together. They would walk between these divided animals and they would pronounce, in a sense, cursings upon themselves. They would, they would pronounce the terms of the covenant. And they would say, may this be done to me as it was done to these animals if I break my agreement in this covenant. I think that's what's happening here. I think that that's consistent with the the ancient Near Eastern tradition. And what you'll notice is Abram is off to the side. Abram's asleep. And God alone, in fire and flame and smoke, passes between the halves of the animals, saying to Abram, the fulfillment of this covenant, Abram, depends upon me. The fulfillment of my word depends upon my faithfulness, and I am always faithful. I never break my word. Abraham's faith grows. He has assurance. And then he stumbles. And he gets up and then he stumbles again. But then by the end of his life, he's come to know God so so deeply, so personally. As we see in a few weeks, he he takes his, his son, that son of promise. Finally, the covenant can be fulfilled through this one. And he says, you know, I love God more 
for who God is than for what I can get from God. And he prepares to offer his son. And Abram is declared the friend of God. Wow, can you imagine that? God says, you are my friend. Abram, you are my son. You're my child. You are my friend. Because he has allowed God to stretch and to grow his faith to that point that what he wants more than anything in life is just God himself. And how do we respond to this? How can we apply this to our lives? Let me give you three potential applications. Uh, Maybe it is that God is calling you to trust in him for the very first time. Maybe you've been in in church your whole life, maybe for years. Maybe uh, you know the story of the gospel, but have you ever come to that point in time where you said, you know, it's it's not just that Christ died for the sins of the world. He died for, for my sins, and I believe. Maybe this morning is that moment for you to say, God, I believe. I trust in what Jesus did, not in my commitments, not in my surrender, not in cleaning up my act, but just simply, only, in the finished work of Jesus Christ that he did for me. Maybe you need to do that for the first time. If so, I cannot encourage you enough. Make this morning that moment for you. Maybe you need to learn to trust God more through his word. Maybe you need to dig deep into what he has spoken to you and the promises of his word. You know, most Sundays we study passages that we've studied before, right? Why do we do that? Because we need to be reminded over and over and over again of the same truths so we dig that foundation deeper and deeper and deeper again that God is trustworthy. Whatever he's spoken, he will accomplish. Or maybe you need to trust God in really difficult times right now. Maybe you are suffering and you're struggling with with fears or anxieties or doubts and God is saying, cling to me, trust me. I'm the creator of the universe. I'm the savior of the world and, and I am your shield. I am your rewarder. I am your friend. Trust me. Let's pray. Father, I don't know where, where each person is this morning or what you want to speak, but I do know you want to speak. I know that you constantly are, are speaking to us and drawing us to yourself. And so I pray for each of us that we would listen to the word that you have for us and that we would respond in ever-growing trust in you. Father, I thank you that you have given us evidence. You've given us creation. You've spoken your word. You've made promises that have come true. You've revealed yourself in history. We have evidence to believe. I pray, Father, that you would grow our confidence. So as we enter into that next trial or struggle or frustration, we would cling to you, confidently knowing you. Father, I pray especially for those who may be considering trusting you for the first time. I pray that the gospel of your son Jesus would be clear to them. And today would be the day that they move out of death into life and have overwhelming confidence they will spend eternity with you. Father, I thank you that you have revealed us to yourself ultimately in your son who gave his life so we could have life. I pray, Father, we would walk out today with confidence and as we enter into our relationships with those who don't know you, that they would sense our, our peace, our trust, our confidence in you and they'd be drawn to you through us. It's in Christ's powerful, precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Enjoy growing in your faith this week.